Aren't you glad that that good news is true? Christ is a sure and steady anchor. No matter what you're facing today or will face in the days to come, there is a faithful and sure and strong anchor that you can hold to. You can go ahead and be seated, and as you do, let's pray and thank the Lord for His faithfulness. Lord, You are faithful. We sing about it. We hear about it, but we just declare it this morning. You are faithful, you have been faithful, and you will be faithful, and therefore all our hope is in this anchor, this sure and steady anchor. We thank you that your promises are true. We thank you that you'll never abandon your promises or your people, and so we find great joy in these promises, even when life is difficult and hard and things don't go our way and we get bad news, we thank You that we can trust and hope in You. Lord, I pray this morning that with Your Word You would come and speak to us and bring the healing and hope that we need. Would You allow Your Word to penetrate the darkest parts of our heart? Would You help us to be honest with ourselves and with You? about what You reveal to us, and would You help us to not be taken captive, but to worship and serve and love and have faith in You for all our days. We long for Your coming, Lord Jesus. We pray for Your coming, and we pray You'd prepare us for that day. We pray You'd do that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. It's so good to see you here this morning. If you're a guest with us, we are really glad that you're here. We hope you feel welcome. We hope you feel valued. And we hope maybe you hang around after the service for a few minutes and get to know someone. We would love to meet you. We would love for you to introduce yourself to us. Now, if you've never been here before, we're about to do something really strange. We're about to read an entire chapter of Scripture. Revelation chapter 13. And after I read that entire chapter of Scripture... I'm going to take, I don't know, about 25 or 30 minutes to try to explain what it says and what it means in a way that we can apply it to our lives. So we're not going to have a a video. We're not going to have a skit. There won't be any props or anything. It's just me standing right here reading and explaining and pointing and exulting in what we see in Scripture. And the reason we're going to do this, and the reason we do this every Sunday morning, is because we believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed. It's the authoritative Word of God. And so, more than anything else, we want to hear God speak. And we believe God changes us as we hear Him speak by the power of His Word. We believe all of Scripture is God-breathed, even parts of Scripture like Revelation 13 that seem a little strange to our modern ears We believe this is God's Word. And the reason we're studying this particular chapter this morning is because we've been studying the entire book of Revelation about a chapter at a time, give or take. So go ahead and turn there or navigate to Revelation 13 in in your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible with you, I really want you to open this and have this in front of you. And so there should be a black hardback Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And if if you need to get that, Pew Bible, it's on page 1035. Revelation is the very last book in the Bible, and so shouldn't be very hard to find. But let's read Revelation 13, and let's listen as God speaks to us from His Word. 
John says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This is the Word of God. May God write its truth on our hearts. So as you can see, we are going to be talking about the mark of the beast today. 
For some of you, this has probably been the week you've been looking forward to since January when we started this trek through Revelation. And we will get there in just a moment. First, notice the context. At the end of chapter 12, Satan, who was pictured as the great red dragon, is furious. He is furious because he was defeated by Jesus, and so he has determined to use his remaining time persecuting and pursuing the people of God. Satan has decided to make war on us. That was the message of chapter 12. We have a real enemy who is doing everything in his power to make following Jesus difficult in this world. And so we see here in chapter 13 that as part of his strategy, Satan calls forth some help. Satan summons two other beasts to be sort of his his henchmen to help him accomplish this dastardly mission that he has. In verses 1-10, through the dragon calls a beast from the sea. And in verses 11-18, through the dragon calls a beast from the earth. So these two beasts, along with the dragon from chapter 12, form something of an unholy trinity. Satan is always trying to mock and parody God, and so he does so here by setting himself up as the father, the first beast as the son, and the third beast, or the the second beast as the spirit. This unholy and despicable trinity is opposing the holy and perfect triune God. And the reason God gives us this vision, the reason God tells us about this is so that we would persevere and endure despite the satanic onslaught from these beasts. There is a satanic onslaught going on in our world today. Satan and his beast are out to get us to worship them instead of worshiping God. And the purpose of this chapter is declared clearly at the end of verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Here's the intended outcome of this chapter that we would endure that we would know the schemes of our enemies so that we would endure to the end. And so let's consider what this passage says about each of these two beasts so that we would be warned not to be taken captive by them, not to be submitting to them. And so in verses 1-10, through we see the sea beast in slaves. And in verses 11-18, through we see that the earth beast deceives. The sea beast enslaves. The earth beast deceives. And so first let's look at the sea beast who enslaves. So in verse 1, notice John says he saw this beast rising out of the sea. The picture that comes to my mind as I read this passage is of this slow motion, sort of cinematic, dramatic emergence from the sea. Notice John sees this beast from the very tip of his horns down. He starts by seeing these ten horns and the seven 
heads of this beast. And so like the dragon we saw last week, this beast boasts of great power and great authority. Notice it has ten crowns on its heads. In other words, it's mocking the authority and royalty of God. And notice John says that it has blasphemous names written on these heads. Its seven heads are tattooed with God-dishonoring and untruthful sayings intended to challenge God's purity. And notice verse 2 points us back to the beast in Daniel chapter 7 that Daniel saw these beasts in often in Revelation, again and again and again, we can point back to the Old Testament where we see these same images. And this image comes from Daniel chapter 7. John says the beast was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's feet. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. This is a seriously frightening beast. This description of His power, of His authority, of His appearance is supposed to terrify us. This description is worse than our, than our most paralyzing nightmare. And the end of verse 2 makes sure we know that Satan himself is the power and authority behind this beast. This beast rose from the pit of hell. That's how you could summarize these first few verses. This beast rises from hell itself. And in verse 3, this beast seems to be clearly mocking the resurrection of Jesus. Because notice, one of its heads had a mortal wound that was healed. This head had been struck dead, but then it had been healed. This is mocking the resurrection of Jesus. And because of this healing, it causes everyone else in the whole earth to marvel at and worship the beast. Now, if you've been tracking with us through the book of Revelation, you know that this passage isn't teaching that there will be a literal seven-headed beast that emerges from the sea and does these things. Right? These visions in Revelation are intended to represent something far more evil and subtle than just some ugly beast that comes out of the sea. Think about it. If you were at the beach relaxing along with everyone else and this beast came walking out of the water, would your first reaction be to worship it? No. Right? Your initial reaction would be to run from it or perhaps shoot at it. And so if this isn't describing an actual beast, what does the beast represent? What does this beast Represent And let me be honest with you. I said from the very first passage in Revelation, there are going to be some things that we just have to say, I'm not sure. And that's my answer. What does this beast represent? I'm not exactly sure. But I think the way that John and the original readers would have understood this beast is that this beast represents the Roman Empire. You see, the beasts that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7, they represented the various kingdoms and world powers at the time and predicted their rising and their falling. In fact, the fourth beast in Daniel chapter 7 is widely understood to be referring to the Roman Empire. 
And so John, with his background in the Old Testament, with his understanding of the Old Testament, I think would have understood this beast to be representing the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire at the time John was writing was a despicable kingdom. The Roman Caesars, the Roman leaders demanded that people worship them and they took upon themselves blasphemous names like Lord and God and demanded that people call them Lord and God. They ruled with absolute authority and they persecuted Christians severely. And so I think the original readers would have associated this beast with Rome. But I think the point of this beast is much bigger than just Rome. My best guess is that this beast represents any political system or nation that is opposed to God and His ways. This sea beast is picturing the way human kingdoms always demand worship and allegiance from its citizens. You see, Christians in every era, in every nation, throughout this church age, have faced opposition and pressure from governments and political leaders. Satan uses these sinful leaders, these sinful systems of government to pressure people to worship someone or something other than God. Governments have always, throughout this church age, pressured Christians to compromise their faith, to stop worshiping Jesus in order to worship something else. And friends, if you can't see this happening in all aspects of our American government these past few years, then you ought to be seriously concerned about yourself. The demand for worship, the demand for allegiance to a system or to an ideology or to a party is not even hidden anymore. Like it's loud and in your face today, and it's straight from the pit of hell. Now, the goal of this sea beast is in verse four. Look at it. What is this sea beast trying to do? And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? The people of earth are worshiping the beast. They are giving the beast worship that only God deserves. Right? That's what we're supposed to be saying about God Almighty. Who is like him? And who can stand against him? But all of a sudden now, there's a, there's a different allegiance. There's a, there's a different wor- object of worship. Notice in verses 5-7, through seven, the dragon, Satan, gives authority to this beast, even though we know all authority ultimately comes from God. And it even says that this beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Now, I don't think that's... That's meaning that the the beast was able to conquer their faith. I think it's talking about their lives. It's referring to martyrs, those who were killed for their faith in Jesus. Notice verse 8. And all who dwell on earth. Now remember that phrase, dwell on earth. That's a technical phrase that could be translated earth dwellers. All the earth dwellers. In other words, all those who are of the earth who are not of God. All who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world 
in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Notice what verse 8 is saying in its most basic sense. In its most basic sense, verse 8 is saying there are only two groups of people that exist. There are those who worship the beast and there are those who don't. And those who do not worship the beast are described here as those whose names have been written in the book of life of the slain lamb. Is this not an incredibly comforting truth for those who are following Jesus? Like, think about what verse 8 is saying. My name was written in the book of life before the world was ever even created. My name. That means there's nothing I've done, good or bad, that got my name in this book. Before I did anything, before the foundation of the world, God put my name in His book and sent His Son to pay for my sins through His death. If you are in Christ, your name written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life, this is where all my security and hope rests. Friends, my security, my hope is not in my ability to resist the allure of the beast. My hope, my security is in the fact that God put my name in the book of life. My hope is in him, not in anything I can do or have done. So like when you see this picture, everyone, great and small, worshiping the beast. And someone comes along and says, why don't you worship the beast? The answer is not because I grew up in a Christian family. The answer is not because my church is so great. The answer is not because I read my Bible every day. Why are you not worshiping the beast like everyone else? Because my name's written in the book of life and has been there before the foundation of the world. So is your name written in the book of life? Or are you worshiping the beast? And you stop me there and you say, well, hold on a second. I, I don't worship the beast, but I also don't really have time for God and all this. No, it's one or the other. You're either worshiping the beast or your name's written in the book of life. And so how do you know? How do you know if your name is written in the book of life and has been there before the foundation of the world? And the answer is Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus your Savior? You see, the evidence that your name is written in the book of life is a relationship with King Jesus through His sacrifice on the cross. And so, trust Jesus now. He alone can save you from the power of the beast. He alone can forgive you for your worship of the beast. And all of us have worshipped the beast. Well, in verse 9, John makes sure we're paying attention. He makes sure we haven't fallen asleep. Notice, just as we saw in the seven letters to the seven churches, John says, if anybody has an ear, let him hear this. In other words, pay attention. Be alert. Wake up. This beast captures people for the purpose of worship. This sea beast kills with the sword. We aren't playing games here. This is real life. This is the reality that we all live in. There is a real enemy who is actively capturing people for the purpose of worship. Everyone worships someone or something. 
either worship the beast or you worship the Lord Jesus. And so the main point is at the end of verse 10. Again, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. In other words, don't give up. Persevere in trusting in and worshiping Jesus alone. Don't you feel this, friends? Don't you feel this? If you're following Jesus, there's this continual pull against you. And this text is explaining why that is. Why it just seems so hard. Why it seems a couple steps forward and a couple steps back. And there's always this pressure against you if you're really seeking to follow Jesus. This text is explaining why that is. You see, if you follow the beast, if you worship the beast, it just feels right. There's no pull, right? But if we war against the beast, there's this constant opposition. The beast hates God's holiness and God's majesty. It seeks to twist and distort and confuse. This beast demands that we worship it instead of Jesus. So the call of this passage is don't be taken captive. Don't be captivated by the beast and its power and its authority. Worship Jesus alone. So that's the first beast. But notice the second beast, the earth beast who deceives. The earth beast who deceives. Now, we don't get much of a description of this second beast in verses 11 through 18 because this second beast's purpose is to get us to worship the first beast. We are told there in verse 11 that he had horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. But then John focuses here on all these signs and wonders that this second beast, all these miracles that he performs in order to get the earth dwellers to worship the first beast. Now, later in the book of Revelation, this second beast is actually going to be called the false prophet. And so what this beast represents is someone who seems to speak for God, someone who claims to speak for God, but actually deceives people into worshiping the beast. That's what a false prophet does. All these signs, all these wonders, fire coming down from heaven, a mortal wound being healed, all of this stuff is designed to amaze people so that they will listen to the false message of this beast. Jesus himself warned us that this would happen. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, Jesus said, false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And so this first beast that we saw in verses 1 through 10 probably represents sinful kingdoms and governmental authorities. But this second beast probably represents sinful religious authorities who lead people astray. You see, this second beast claims to speak for God. But the proof that he does not and he is not of God is the fact that he deceives people into worshiping the first beast. Friends, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you need to understand this. There are churches and denominations and preachers who are this second beast. They don't come right out and say, worship Satan or you'll die. No, they're much more deceptive and subtle than that. They say a lot of things that sound right, a lot of things that seem good, but in essence, they are leading people astray and away from God. If anyone has an ear, 
let him hear. This is the call for endurance. This is a call for faith and discernment. Now, in verse 16, we see that this second beast requires everyone to receive a mark or a seal to be able to buy or sell. This beast makes people prove their allegiance. Prove your allegiance by receiving this mark. If you worship the beast, then you'll get a pass to participate in the commerce of the day. If you refuse to align with the beast, then you'll be shut out from making a living and providing for your family. This is the way, this is the way that it's worked throughout history. Christians have been marginalized and pushed aside. We saw this very thing in those first letters to the seven churches. That those churches were enduring this kind of financial hardship because they were just shut out of the trade guilds. They were shut out of the market. They couldn't buy or sell because they wouldn't submit to the governmental authorities of their day. And so this beast uses our very livelihood to get us to compromise and worship the first beast. Now this is a direct parody of what we have seen God do in chapter 7. Remember in chapter 7, Revelation 7, God seals or marks His people in order to secure them. God seals His people with His very own name. And so Satan, always trying to mock and mimic God, provides a mark for his people. If you mark your people, God, then I'm going to mark my people. Verse 17 says the mark contains the name of the beast and the number of his name. And verse 18 says the number of the beast is 666. And so what is this so-called mark of the beast? What is the mark of the beast? Well, as you are aware, there are a lot of crazy and silly ideas on this. We could spend hours laughing at and mocking some of the weird and wrong interpretations of this mark of the beast. One thing that some commentators do here is they do this thing with math and numbers where they, they make each letter of the alphabet a certain number and then they manipulate the particular language, Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic or so forth, and then they'll even add a title in front of the name so that they can somehow figure out a way to get to 666. Right? There are ways to manipulate the letters of pretty much any name that you can think of to come out to 666, which obviously means they're the beast, right? Some popular names that people have done this to are Nero, Hitler, Obama, Trump, and even Biden. Others have focused not so much on identifying a person with the beast, so as to identifying what this physical mark of the beast will be. Some say, obviously, this is our credit cards. Obviously, this is our social security number or the face recognition on our phones or even now the COVID vaccine. It has also been popular to see this as something that's going to happen just before the second coming of Jesus where people are literally and physically going to be branded with a barcode or number on their forehead or right hand or maybe even have a chip implanted in them. Now think about this. We've already seen God seal His servants. And it was clear in chapter 7 that the seal wasn't physical. The seal was God putting His Spirit inside of us. The Spirit is the seal, His very own name in us. And so here we have the same thing where Satan is providing a mark 
why would the first thing we think of be some barcode or some number? I think this calls for wisdom, John says. This calls for wisdom. Do you actually think that the enemy is going to be that obvious? Like, just pretend for a second you're watching the Super Bowl. You're watching the Super Bowl with everybody else, and all of a sudden, Satan hacks into the broadcast and says to everyone watching, unless you get a chip implanted in your forehead, you will no longer be able to get paid by your job, you'll no longer be able to shop at any grocery stores, and you'll no longer be able to go to any restaurants anymore. Like, how many people do you think are going to actually like run out and get that chip immediately? Right? That would be easy to resist, right? Like, that's obvious. I mean, it would actually be awesome if that happened, right? I mean, we would have this great opportunity to stand firm and not compromise. We're not doing that. But friends, we know our enemy is more deceptive and subtle than that, don't we? This mark is not something that's going to be super obvious and easy to say no to. The whole point is it's going to be deceptive. It's going to come at you from a direction you aren't expecting it. You see, the mark of the beast is something that's going to be totally plausible. In fact, I'm about to argue, the mark of the beast is something we already do and think and embrace. You see, friends, the forehead represents what we think, what we believe, right? the truths that we hold to. Right? The forehead represents our ideological commitments, what's central to us. And our right hand represents the practical outworking of those beliefs, those commitments, what we do. And so the mark of the beast is a sign that we have forsaken the Lord Jesus in our beliefs and in our actions. The mark of the beast is going with the flow so that you don't get persecuted, so that you don't get marginalized. Now think about the number 666. Verse 18 says that this is the number of a man. Remember, humans were created on the sixth day of creation. Numbers in Revelation are symbolic. We've seen this over and over again. Remember the number seven that we've seen most of the time. It's the number of completeness. It's the number of perfection. When you see seven, it means all of them. And so what's the number six? Well, the number six is one less than seven. Now, I know that's stretching the limits of your brain, but I've done the math for you. <laughs> You don't even have to think six is one less than seven. And so six is the number of incompleteness. Six is the number of sin. The devil is not complete. The devil is not whole. And so sixes, three of them, six, 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 is raised to the third degree. Just as God is seven, seven, seven in his perfection, so the beast is six, six, six in his incompleteness. Friends, so much bad theology and fear has been based on this number. And so let me try to help free you from this. I heard a preacher say recently that he was at Starbucks buying a drink and the total came out to $6.66. And the cashier with wide eyes asked him if he wanted to change his order or perhaps add something else to it. Have you ever done something like this? You're, you're pumping gas and it stops at $26.66 and so just squeeze a little bit more just so you don't land on that number. 
growing up, my wife's telephone number ended with 666. You know, back in the day, for you young people, you don't know about this, but back in the day, you actually had to tell people your phone number or write it down, uh, you know, for them. And so she tells the story of how all growing up, people would ask them why they didn't change their phone number. Listen, let the hearer understand. That is missing the whole point. The number 666 is not cursed. You don't have to go around avoiding this number like it's some sort of bad luck charm. The point of this number in Revelation 13 is to show that our sin and our idol worship is the mark of the beast. Our unbiblical ideologies that we hold, the worship of political parties, and the false beliefs we embrace, those are the mark of the beast. When we turn from the worship of the true, the one true living God, and we turn to worship anything or anyone else, that is the work of the beast. That is what the beast wants. Satan wants us to think that this mark of the beast is something other people get, right? Like, why would we be talking to people in church about the mark of the beast? That's for those Satan worshipers out there. But friends, all of us have the mark of the beast in our souls. All of us who have failed to trust God to provide for us, to protect us, have the mark of the beast. All of us who do not love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength have the mark of the beast. All who have fallen short of the glory of God are incomplete and are lacking. All of us are sixes. All of us. And so the call of this passage is to turn away from our sin from our idol worship and trust in Jesus alone no matter what pressure the world throws at us no matter what compromise we're tempted with the call of this passage is to turn away from anything that would distract us from the the true and living God Jesus is the Savior who saves us from the mark of the beast this is the good news this is the great news that we can celebrate today Jesus is the perfect seven He bore upon Himself our incompleteness, our lack, our sin, our idol worship. He bore in Himself the mark of the beast so that you and I can know that seven, can be that seven that is perfect and complete in His sight forever and ever. You see, with Jesus, we do not fear the mark of the beast. We do not fear His deceptions. We do not fear His temptations to compromise because Jesus paid it all. So friends, let me close with just three quick applications that I think this passage points us toward. Three quick applications. Number one, sharpen your discernment. Sharpen your discernment. If this is true, if what Revelation 13 is telling us is true and real about the world and the life that we live, then friends, we've got to be discerning people. If deception is going to come to us out of nowhere, if it's going to come from places we don't assume, if it's going to tempt us to compromise and worship someone or something other than our true God, then we've got to be discerning. Friends, don't believe everything you hear. Don't be deceived. Study the Scriptures so that you can discern what is of God and what is of the beast. It's the best advice I can give you. Study the Scriptures a day at a time. 
15 minutes at a time. Read and think about the Scripture for the rest of your life. That's the best way to learn discernment. That's the best way to sharpen your discernment. Secondly, clarify your allegiance. Clarify your allegiance. I think, I think you're doing that today by being here. Like coming Sunday after Sunday after Sunday is clarifying who you're aligned with. But friends, make it clear. Make it clear who you worship. Make it clear through your life and your social media and through your relationships that you're with Jesus. Let there be no doubt that all other allegiances, whether to your country or your political party or to your particular ideologies, those are secondary to your primary allegiance to Jesus. Make your allegiance clear. Let it be known to everyone who knows you that you are with Jesus. Third, celebrate your security. Celebrate your security. Has your name been written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world? Then if so, celebrate with unbounding joy that you are secure in Jesus. We're going to close in just a moment by singing, He will hold me fast. This is what we're singing. That I, I can't hold myself fast, but He will hold me fast. When my love grows cold, when I'm deceived and led astray, He will hold me fast. So let's celebrate that together. Pray with me. Father, thank You for Your promises. Father, thank You for Your Word. Give us discernment. Give us discernment so that we are not led astray. Clarify our allegiance. Even today, Lord, I pray for those who are in this room who it's just kind of unclear who they worship. I pray that you would help them through the power of Jesus and his death to clarify that allegiance that they would say today, I'm all in with Jesus. And Lord, would you help us to celebrate the security that we have in you, even as we sing this song together. We believe this, Lord. You will hold us fast. Because our names have been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain for our sins. And we say hallelujah, praise you. Thank you. And we thank you in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.